0: Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JPMorgan Chase Bank, NA member, FDIC. Copyright 2024. JPMorgan Chase & Co.
1: The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with Location Telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T Mobile.com/slash now.
2: This is your moment. Your time to shine. Your comeback.
3: Before we get started, let's talk about Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a subscription podcast program available on Apple Podcasts. Members will get access to exclusive bonus content, like my weekly bookmarks, where I talk about how I got a book agent and what I'm watching on TV that week. You'll get uninterrupted listening to many of your favorite podcasts, like Revisionist History, Cautionary Tales, and The Happiness Lab. Sign up for Pushkin Plus on the show page in Apple Podcasts, or at pushkin.fm.
4: For me, it brings me so much joy to have written, not when I'm writing, but to have written is joyful for me. And in order to get to that joy, I have to write. <laughs>
3: Writing is hard work and when you become as successful a writer as Jacqueline Woodson there is a whole new level of noise and distraction that seeps in. So how do you settle down and just write? Welcome to Well Read Black Girl, the literary kickback you didn't know you needed. I'm your host, Glory Adam. Each week, I sit in conversation with one of my favorite authors. We talk about the craft of writing, and of course, what it means to be well-read. Jacqueline Woodson is a literary rock star. She's an award-winning author, has written over 30 books for adults and children, and in 2020, she even nabbed the MacArthur Genius Award. She also writes screenplays, screenplays. Jacqueline turned her book Miracles Boys into a TV miniseries, and is currently working on a screenplay for another one of her books. Among her many accomplishments, one near and dear to my heart is Baldwin for the Arts, a residency program that Jacqueline founded in 2018. This residency gives artists a space to just slow down and focus on their craft, It's a real gift to be able to give that time and space to writers. And I'm happy to say that I'm on the board of that organization. We touch on all these things in our conversation today, including her latest book. It's a picture book for kids that came out earlier this year and it's called The Year We Learned to Fly. Jacqueline and I were able to have such a great conversation about her book's exploration of mindfulness for children and the need for escape. I plan to read it to my little boy, Zeke. How are you doing? How are you feeling? I'm good. It's so good to see you, Glory. I want to talk about your new book, and like how you keep turning them out like <laughs> every time you write a new book it is just so phenomenal and well done and i just got my copy i can't wait to read it to zeke he might try to eat the pages but i think you will understand the concept of being free and flying and being your fullest self what made you write this new book and What inspired you?
4: The the crazy thing about it is I keep saying, you know what? I need to stop writing because I started it before the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. And I I started it in 2019. And I was thinking about the way kids get put in timeouts, the way they feel the sense of powerlessness and, Mm. and the sense that their physical bodies aren't their own because we get to say, take that physical body to school, take that physical body to bed, take that physical body up to your room and think about what you just said. And so I started thinking about how the thing we can control is our mind and and what happens inside it. And then I was writing it and and trying to think of it in the moment, but I can never think of stuff like just in the moment because we don't live in the moment. We live in this history. And so then yeah. I went back and read The People Could Fly because that was such a story I had loved Forever, Virginia Hamilton's yeah. book, um, and thinking about our ancestors and the way they had to escape using their minds. And I had read *The Water Dancer* by Tanahasi Coates, and it just all started coming together. And I wanted to talk about escape and and the power in the psyche. And then we got locked down. <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, this is timely in a very scary way. But by that time, I had pretty much finished writing. It was a little freaky for me to be like, oh, here are my characters and they're stuck in some space and here's the world and we're stuck in a space. But it was bananas. I was um, talking to Rafael Lopez, who's the illustrator, about it. And it was interesting because you look at the illustrations And no one has on a mask, right? Because it was before the pandemic. And I'm thinking about what's going to happen to picture books from this moment on. Like, Mm. will kids look at them and see maskless people and say, is this an old timey book?
3: (laughs) Right? Right. This is our new reality. It's exactly. yeah, it's wild to think about that. It's so wild. But I love the fact that you are so intentional about mindfulness for young people, for children, for little people that are just trying to come into themselves. Because I don't think I really started meditating or had a, a really clear concept of that until adulthood. You know, I've read all your books and I love Brown Girl Dreaming. And I, I think the one thing that stood out for me when I opened the book is the family tree. The fact that we get to know who your people are before we even start to go into the beautiful story. And I'm I'm really curious to learn more about your family and how your family helped you become the person you you are today. Can you share what your like your first childhood memory of books were, or just reading anything?
4: Oh, that's such a great question. I'm trying to think my earliest memory. Uh, I, I, I have to say that the first time a story struck me in the gut was The Little Match Girl by Hans Christian Andersen. And the fact that it was the first time I read a book where a character died at the end. And I was like, wait, where's the happily ever after? Like, turning the page and like, wait, it's not supposed to end this way. And um, I'm being devastated because I felt like I had been taught to believe that fiction always had a happy ending, right? Because you start with the fairy tales, then you go to the parables, the fables. And then here was this book where this girl, this child who is young like me hadn't survived. And I had not known any young people who died, um, thankfully, but, but that really kind of struck a core with me and really made me think about not only looking back on it, um, fiction and writing and the way stories get told, but also social justice. Because it just felt so wrong that a child would be homeless, that a child would be without family, that a child would have to be in the streets selling matches and trying to make a living for themselves and not having someone to take care of them, that a child would die of neglect. So all of those things really puzzled me and angered me. And of course, the first step toward activism is rage right? and a desire to change things.
3: I also think that there's something to be said about this slow and steady growth as an artist, as a writer, as a person in general. And you have been very vocal about even how, how you read. You know, you mentioned before that you can be a slow reader and very intentional about that. What do you think you've gained from like taking your time with things? How has that like influenced how you just like move in the world and how
4: you even write and revise? It's such a journey. And it's one that I've always been on as a slow reader, as someone who's always thought, if I do this, then this is going to happen. And then I'm going to need to do this. And I need to follow through with that. Um, Not so much like a game of chess, but contemplative. So I think that I've always written that way. And when I see writers who are thinking, okay, I finished this book, well, have 10 other people read it? Have you revised it 10 times? Have you read it out loud to see what it sounds like? What has the character wanted? And how have they gotten it? Has that been answered? What about you know, the non-primary characters? And then next thing is like, well, how come such and such got a big advance and I didn't get a big advance? And, and all of those things that when I was coming up, I was like, yay, I got an advance. I have no idea what anyone else got because I don't have the internet, right? It hasn't been invented <laughs> yet. So... <laughs> So so it is is a different time. And I don't know if it's because I'm older, but the world feels so much noisier now. And there's Mm. so many more ways to procrastinate, right? I started out in the 80s on a typewriter. And so there was no distraction. There was no phone to pick up unless I was picking up the phone that was plugged into the wall and calling someone. It wasn't like, oh, I'm stuck at a place. Let me go online shop or let me go check my Twitter account or Instagram. That didn't exist. So it's like, okay, Jackie, all you got are these words in front of you. (laughs) And if you don't do something with them, they're going to still be in front of you unfinished.
3: I think we are bombarded with so much noise mm-hmm. and the mindfulness, the slowing down to be more quiet and subdued and just like relaxing into our bodies. How would you like advise or recommend people do that? I mean, the obvious thing, we can go to a residency upstate, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but for a new writer that may not have those tools yet, how can you like build your practice of like quieting down and just like being focused on the
4: writing? yeah um when I first went to McDowell, you know it was um it was before cell phones. When you got to your cabin, you had nothing, nothing was happening there except the windows and the deer outside and your table and your typewriter or your laptop and your printer. Um, actually, I didn't even have a printer. I would go back to the main house to print and that would be a reason for me to leave my studio. But they would bring a basket lunch to your door. When you were ready, you go outside, you get your lunch, you'd eat and keep on writing until the dinner bell rang at 6 p.m. And what they wanted was at 6 p.m. all the artists to stop working. And this was the time to engage with the visual artists and the composers and the other writers. And it was a time to talk about art. And then people would do performances. Um, people were deliberate about how they were going to engage with their work and their art. and that's how I learned it. And I think now that same mindset can be built by a young artists, right? So, mm-hmm. so be deliberate about it. Say from 8 to 12 or whatever those hours are, I'm unplugged. I don't want to get any text from anyone. I'm going to leave my phone off or in a different room. And I'm going to turn on some program to not let anything come through my computer. And just be very deliberate about letting the people come right? Because the characters aren't going to come to you if there's a sale at Bloomingdale's or whatever that's happening, (laughs) that's going to keep you from having the voices that become the um, fiction enter. And it's a muscle, right? And the more you use it, the stronger it gets. And the less you use it, the more it atrophies. And I definitely do feel like you have to fight the noise and be intentional and, and set those boundaries for yourself. And it's interesting because I think people are looking more at self-care now and looking more at the ways that they can do the stuff they love. And it's also kind of interesting that this could be a fight against writing, right? Because is this work? Do I really want to be working now? You know, if we don't do the work, the writing doesn't get done. So for me, it brings me so much joy to have written, not when I'm writing, but to have written is joyful for me. And in order to get to that joy, I have to write.
1: much, much better. Just go to Muzora.com, musora.com, M U S O R A.com to start a new musical journey today.
0: I'm Glory Adam,
3: and this is Well Read Black Girl. I'm speaking with writer Jacqueline Whitson. I have been thinking about this idea of pairing self-care and self-discipline and this idea of when things are challenging, it's actually okay to sit with difficult moments and work through them and build through that uncertainty because in the end, the end result is what we're building towards. But I'm finding that I'm learning to love revision and I'm loving to learn to like rewrite and rewrite. Like that revision process for me is so rewarding. And I'm really curious to learn how you get into your revision process, especially when you're juggling multiple
4: narratives. It's so crazy, Glory. It, it's, yesterday I was taking notes on a new book that I'm writing and I took the notes and I put them to the side because I'm working on an outline for a screenplay that I have to finish by tomorrow. And, and, and I'm, you know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to sit here until it's done. I close my office door. I'm going to pull my curtains closed. And that's how I do it. I love a deadline. I love the revision process. I love when I can see a book falling apart, right? You're writing and it's wonderful and it's fabulous and it's the best thing you've ever written and it's the next great novel. And and then you get to that point and all the characters are trash, right? And it's cliched and you're like using adjectives that lead us nowhere and all of that. And that's the point where you have to start scaffolding, right? That's the point mm-hmm. where you have to ask what your character wants and how your character is going to get it. And you know what's the hero's journey? I I always I, I depend a lot on the hero's journey, and so when I get to that point of scaffolding, I I sit and I'm mad at myself for a couple of days, and then I I bring fresh eyes and I read everything out loud. So so usually in the morning when I'm starting a rewrite, I'll start by reading it out loud to bring the story back into my body and my head, and that really helps me sit down and start taking it apart or piecing it back together. I don't have to worry about characters getting mixed up. And of course, they're overlapping themes in all of my work. But I do try to keep the characters different.
3: I love that. I love that. Because I'm I'm now working on a couple of different projects. (laughs) And it's been, I literally have all these like sticky notes on my wall to like organize them. But seeing it visually does help me. Um, You've written over 30 books for children and adults. What drives you to continue writing? (laughs)
4: It keeps me sane. Writing really does. And any writer out there knows that. I'm sure you know that, that the writing is the thing that keeps me feeling like I have some control over what happens in the world, whether or not I do or not. I know I have it in fiction. So so it makes me feel like it's a place I can go to. And it's also a place that helps me breathe better. So, so I couldn't imagine not doing it. I, I, I've never done it for the money. The money has been nice <laughs> when it's come, but early on, as a lot of people know, the money does not come and you have to have other jobs. And when I had the many, many other jobs, um, I was never happy doing them and I was always happy when I was writing. So, so, and that still holds true. The thing about writing is it keeps me happy. It keeps me sane. It keeps me feeling like, I have some way of creating change in a world that so often makes us feel powerless to creating change. I see that in your work today,
3: and now I see it as it transforms into the Baldwin residency in this community that aims to protect writers, especially when they're most vulnerable. And I'm I'm so honored to be part of your team building Baldwin for the Arts because it is so important. Can we talk about how that originated and, you know, what led to you starting the community and what your vision is for the residency?
4: When I was coming up as a writer in the 80s and early 90s, I just remember this sense of invisibility because I was In a different world. So I have Virginia Hamilton. I have Walter Dean Myers. I had the writers who really supported and mentored me and held me up. I was also writing for adults. And that was a different world. That was a world outside of young people's literature. And I found that that world was a lot of white guys, a lot of attention paid to white guys, and very little attention paid to writers of color, especially writers of color who are coming from young people's literature and it just, it made no sense. So I would, I would send out short stories. They would get rejected. I would apply for fellowships. I'd get rejected. And mm-hmm. then I'd see the people who'd gone through these residencies and gotten these fellowships. And I remember I used to call the Whiting the White People's Award because for so long, <laughs> I didn't see any people of color getting the Whiting. And there were a number of awards happening like that at that time. I mean, you look at the history of the National Book Award. When you go back and you mm-hmm. look at the winners early on, it was very undiverse. And part of the reason those people weren't there is because they hadn't had the foundational structure. There was that period where if you went through the Iowa Writers Workshop, you were golden, right? That period's gone, thankfully. But there was this way in which you had to belong to this certain kind of club that a lot of people who were outside of that narrative couldn't be a part of. So people of the global community, queer people. And so- the first residency I got finally was at McDowell. And when I got there, I was one of very few Black folks. I think Tulani Davis was there at the time, the first time I went mm-hmm. there. But for decades, I always dreamed of a safe space for people of the global majority, for BIPOC people, you know, for people who are trying to do their work without having to explain anything to anyone, especially people... At the beginning of their work where I think there's such a fragility and and it's so easy to lose young writers and composers and visual artists because they don't have support systems. They don't have someone saying, I see you come for a week, come for a month and do your work and I will support you. And, And so. It was this kind of back of the head dream of mine that I thought when I finally get enough money from writing books and when I'm older, I can do it. And then I got the Alma Award, which was at that point was about $500,000 or maybe something more. And, And I thought this is a sign that I can do this work now. And and so I, you know, bought the property and started building the vision of Baldwin for the Arts. And thankfully, people like you came on board and helped with the vision. And of course, you know, you were one of the early people I thought of because what I saw with Well-Wired Black Girl was you, you, the vision you started with and the amazingness that it has grown into. So I really wanted to do that, and and it's been crazy to see the result of that and the fellows that have come through it are all so grateful. And also creating amazing stuff. Like, I think that was kind of a surprise to me. It's like these young artists, and of course it's not just young age-wise, right? It's people at the earlier stages of their career are doing some phenomenal stuff that I had never imagined would be the kind of work I'd see. Because of course I'm older and I'm like, oh, it's gonna be this or that. And it's like, whoa, this this is amazing. I'm, I have, oh gosh, I have so many questions
3: because I'm thinking about you uh, winning your your first National Book Award and then winning this prize that gave you the funds to start this institution. And you are now on the other side. You are this incredible elder that is guiding and providing insight and wisdom. But now you're part of the club, you know? Like you were outside of the club, you know, before you were looking at the, the Whiting Foundation. And now, like, what does it feel like to be on the other side and and be... Part of that community that once you felt so outside of. It's
4: so funny, Gloria. I was at a Kavekhanum event, and um, and and it was packed, and there were no seats anywhere. And I came in, and three people got up and gave me, you know, tried to give me their seats. And I was like, oh, they're so sweet, you know, they're giving me their seat because you know I'm a woman, or because I don't know what. And then I sat down, and I looked around. And I'm like, I'm auntie. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> and it dawned on I me. Mean, I'm like, everyone in this room is probably about 20 years younger than I am. And they're giving me my seat because I'm an elder. And it it blew my mind. Like I it feels like it happened very quickly. Um, who is it that said it took 30 years to become an overnight sensation? Right. Right. Um, right. And and it is true that since that time, 35, 40 years have passed. And and here I am. And it's surprising when I even see my name or someone calls me out or someone recognizes me outside of the world of children's books, like it is still this thing I'm coming to understand is myself being in a different place. I know I'm in a different place economically, but also in terms of the attention, like I see the awards and, and I know I've gotten them, but I think also because of the pandemic, right? So since the pandemic, I got the Hans Christian Anderson, I got the MacArthur and, and those awards are international. And yeah. so then when I go into these spaces, which is so rare now, then I see that people know, oh, you're the MacArthur fellow, or you are the one who got the Hans Christian Andersen award. And, And it's like, oh, yeah, this didn't just happen in a small room in my house, (laughs) you know, with a couple (laughs) of Zoom interviews. Like it happened on a bigger level. So it's interesting. It's a journey. Hey, I'm Jacqueline Woodson and you're listening to Well-Read Black Girl.
1: This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to Muzora.com, musora.com, M U S O R A.com to start a new musical journey today.
3: Okay, Jackie, it's time for everyone's favorite segment Rapid Fire. <laughs> where I ask you a series of questions and you answer the first thing that <laughs> pops into your head. So, okay, first one, name one book that is
4: on your nightstand. It's a galley called Trust by Hernan Diaz.
3: Ooh, that sounds good. Okay, next one, favorite board game as a child. Checkers. <laughs> Freeze tag or Red Light, Green Light? Oh, no, that's hard.
4: <laughs> I have to say Red Light, Green Light.
3: I've read like green like too. That's so funny. Okay. Do you prefer to write in pencil or pen? Um, pen. Describe Bushwick in three words.
4: Um, the bushwick of my childhood or today's bushwick. Because <laughs> they are your different. Your
3: choice. <laughs> okay, let's do childhood. Okay. Let's do childhood.
4: Colorful, alive, um, home. Mm, that's beautiful. Name three items on your desk: headphones, uh CBD oil, <laughs> and a stack of of projects (laughs) in folders.
3: You need need the oil for those stack of projects. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Between Beloved the book or Beloved the film, which was better?
4: Definitely the book. Definitely the book. I think um, the performances in the film were extraordinary, but no one was how I imagined them in the book, especially not Um, Tandy Newton's character. I was just like, what is going on here? There was something so um, ethereal about Beloved the book. And then when I saw it on the screen, I was like, no, sorry. And being someone who's at this point, you know, trying to turn narrative into something visual for the screen, there is a way in which some stuff has to be left unseen except on the page because that's where it was meant to work.
3: I know your screenplay is going to give us all the feelings. I
4: hope hope so. It gave me all the feelings right now. I won't say those are always good ones.
3: (laughs) Thank you, Jackie, for your time and your energy and just sharing all your wisdom with us, our wonderful elder.
4: Thank you, Gloria. I'm so glad to have made it this far. I'm so glad for your work in the world. I'm so proud of you and so thankful. And thanks for having me on the show.
3: I learned so much from my conversation with Jacqueline. I think for me, I'm really inspired to pay more attention to how I treat myself when I'm writing. I need to give myself the space to breathe and create, and you should too. Aspiring writers, you know I'm always looking out for you. You can find information on how to apply to Baldwin for the Arts residency on their website, baldwinforthearts.org. And everyone should go out and pick up the year we learned to fly for a little person in your life. In the next episode, I'll be speaking with the one and only Gabrielle Union. Don't forget to tell your friends. Well, Red Black Girl is a production of Pushkin Industries. It is written and hosted by me, Glory Edam, and produced by Cher Vincent and Brittany Brown. Our associate editor is Keisha Williams. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wang. And our showrunner is Sasha Mathias. Special thanks this week to Vicki Merrick. Our executive producers are Mia Lobel and Lee Tal Molad. At Pushkin, thanks to Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Julia Barton, Jen Guerra, John Schnars, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at wellreadblackgirl. You can find Pushkin on all social media platforms at Pushkin Pods. And you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. If you love this show and others from Pushkin Industries, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you're already a subscriber, make sure to check out my exclusive bookmark series on Pushkin Plus starting on February 18th. You'll hear extended interviews with book club members, bookstore owners, and more. And you get to hear what's on my mind, what's on my radar, and of course, what's on my reading list each week. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen.